<laughs> yeah, you thought you'd get away, huh? You ain't going to get away, friend. You just ain't going to get away because I got you where it really hurts. You ain't getting away. Fate has written a tragedy. Its name is the human heart. The theater is the house of life. Woman, the mummer's part. The devil enters the prompter's box, and the play is ready to start. Yes, this is the overture to our vast play of existence. tell what time of the year it is by the number of commercials. We've got all kinds of them here. So you just hang on, gang, while we get a few of these out of the way. Let's see. First of all, we got the birds. Big old flying birds here. Hey, I'm amazed at the number of people that are, are getting... You know, I just got, I got another letter today. Yeah, I really did. I got another letter today for a guy up in Massachusetts. He says, this bird is unbelievable. He says, as a matter of fact, he said, I'm giving up my wife and kids, and I'm just going to have nothing to do with nothing except this bird. He says, that there's more stuff than anybody I ever knew. And if you want to know about them, uh, you've probably heard about these things we've been talking about them. But they're a flying bird. They're, they're just, a, you know, it's a plastic, groovy little bird. And they're very rugged, incidentally. And uh, they will really fly. They fly as an ornithopter flies. That means uh, it flaps its wings and it goes. And incidentally, if you have one, please read the instructions. A couple of people have written me and said that my bird doesn't take off. Well, it shouldn't. Uh, it is not an ROG model. You know what is it, ROG? Well, that's in models. Modeler's terminology means rise off ground. This uh, is launched by hand. You hold it in your hand, and uh, you just point it into the wind, level, and you let her go, and she will fly. She's guaranteed to fly. It's wild. And anyway, if you'd like to order one of these quick, you just get your name and address uh, and send it in, along with a check or a money order for every flying bird you want. They're $3.98 per each. They are guaranteed to fly. And they come with an extra rubber band, and the address is Flying Birds, Department S, Post Office Box 1909. Post Office Box 1909, Grand Central Station, New York, New York. And you make the check out to Flying Birds, Department S, okay? Now, let's see. Uh, we got the we got the bird. Uh, we'll save the rest. Uh, maybe, maybe you got an E.T. in there for me? How about the Great Western or something? Say, I just learned something about wine. Great Western has a kicky set of booklets called A Little Something. Each one tells you a little something about their great wines. 
and you get them free from your local wine merchant. This one says, the driest or least sweet kind of champagne has B-R-U-T, brut, on the label. For those who prefer something less dry, Great Western has a variety of other New York State champagnes. Special Reserve, Extra Dry, Pink and Sparkling Burgundy. Whichever champagne you like best, you're always safe with Great Western, the great champagne to drink and to give. Try one. You'll see why they're called great. To admit, Great I like. Western, made yeah. by the Pleasant Valley Wine Company, yeah. Hammondsport, New York. Okay, man. Can't shut these guys up once they get started, can you, man? I mean, you know, he's, he's got to hang up there on that wine business. That's what happens to people. But uh, <laughs> I must admit, uh, before he interrupted me, I must admit that uh, I, uh, I, I like champagne. I really do. And uh, you're not supposed to. You know, it's a... Uh, no, I, I really do. I enjoy good champagne. And, uh, I, I, uh, you know, I could tell you story after story about champagne, you know, so, uh, drinking it out of actresses' slippers and all that kind of stuff. Of course, we, I've gone through that whole scene. And, uh, I finally decided that drinking champagne out of a slipper, uh, especially, uh, you know, an actress's slipper, is not really the best way to drink champagne, although it does have certain side benefits which don't have much to do with the champagne itself, but which ultimately can get you into a hell of a lot of trouble. Oh, yes, I've seen gunfire and everything <laughs> as a result of that, but uh, we don't want to get into that. After all, you know, it's not that time of the year. Hey, speaking of time of the year, we got another one here. Have you been looking for those special, distinctive Christmas gifts that are an instant success? Well, according to this copy here, it says, you'll find hundreds of them at Huffman Coos. That's what makes Christmas shopping in any of the Huffman Coos 13 fine furniture stores in New Jersey and New York. Such a pleasure. A big family furniture gift or an intimate remembrance. You can select for more great items than you believe possible. And every one of them has been handpicked to make sure that whatever you choose will bring years of pleasure. So right now at Huffman Coos, there are special values and gifts in every area of all 13 stores. And you'll enjoy coffee and pastries, sparkling holiday decorations, Christmas music, unhurried professional salespeople. Make Christmas a real delight by shopping at Huffman Coos. <laughs> Huffman Coos. Huffman Coos sounds like a very rare skin disease. Uh, but uh, it isn't, actually. It's a <laughs> groovy set of stores open from 9.30 in the morning till 9.30 at night on Saturday until 6 p.m. Call 201-343-4300 for the Huffman Coos nearest you. That's 201-343-4300. Ask for Mr. Coos. Coos. That's spelled with two O's. I, I, why do I have such a bad mind, you know? It would never occur to Barry Farber to say that kind of a thing. It just simply wouldn't. And uh, I don't know. That's, that's, that's why I'm down here sandwiched down in this world. You know, coming down here, following Earl Dowd and just before, before Joe... Yeah, always the way. Sit in the back here. Well, uh, now may I may I uh, get personal here for a minute? It's a you know it's a quiet night here, and uh, I got a letter here today that uh, that I just have to just have to bring to you. Once in a while, a letter comes in. It's it's too good just to you know file with all the rest of the letters. The big machine that chops them up. We got a machine that chops up all the letters and spits out enormous spitballs. 
just like that. And we shoot them over towards the Empire State Building. Once in a while, I aim them towards RCA over there, you know, our RKO. Got, got Hugh Downs one morning. Hell of a shot. Deflection shot, by the way. He was moving away. Caught him at an angle. But, uh, you know, once in a while you get lucky. When you're hot, you're hot, you know. But uh, nevertheless, uh, this guy <laughs> writes me a note. He says, hi, Shep. He says, I finally got my grimy mitts on a copy of Wanda Hickey and enjoyed it immensely. He says, in fact, so much I dropped a line to your publisher informing him that your book was the greatest thing since whoopee cushions and plastic doggy diamonds. Yeah, well, whatever a doggy diamond is. But anyway, he went down, He goes on to say why he digs it, and he's talking about the fact. And he makes some real interesting points here about writing, though. I must say I agree with him. He says, I wonder, and I ignore the stuff about my work because he gets into some interesting stuff about writing. He says, I wonder if you've ever analyzed the reason for the popularity of your writings and so forth. He says, in my opinion, he said, uh, your work is one of the few bright spots and so forth. He says, this is a period when the establishment type official writer that is written about continually in the New York Times book review section has become pompous and egocentric. And the so-called underground writers have retreated into a self-pitying, petulant, slightly whiny form of criticism which is extremely stylized and formal in its own way. The label underground writer has always been a source of great amusement to me. Any guy who uh, openly collects fees and royalties for his writings has them published openly, sold on all the newsstands in Times Square and in bookstores, and he says, <laughs> lives and travels first class and still considers himself an underground writer, is on an ego trip of the first magnitude. Those writers, past, present, and future, living in true totalitarian societies, who know that putting their thoughts on paper may mean the loss of freedom almost surely, and possibly their life in many cases, must be able to have a bitter belly laugh at the antics of all these underground writers who keep turning up on the Johnny Carson show <laughs> and calling the says, that's true, you know? We use those phrases. He says, possibly the reason your writings and I lump your performances in the category are so appreciated widely by such diverse peoples is that they're concerned with the itches, aches, and yearnings which afflict all of us at one time or another in our lives, regardless of our social status or color or sex. He says, they are certainly not nostalgic, but are like all good humorous writings, timeless. Though most literary critics seem to lack the perception to realize this. He says, you've written about many subjects which are totally ignored by official and unofficial writers alike. Let me expound on an experience of mine which is similar to many which you have discussed on the air. He says, you're one of the few people who talk about the mystique of the used car. That's quite right. And, uh, and it, 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 it's a, to me, it's a, it's a fertile field for, uh, for writing. And I've written several stories about uh, buying and, and you know, living in the world of used cars. But he goes on and tells this great story. You want to hear, hear one of our, our uh, readers our listeners uh, type stories. He says, three weeks ago at dusk, I found myself in a medium-sized central New York City. I had just walked out of one of my favorite chain restaurants after dining on a true Epicurean delight only available to, to those of us living in late 20th century America. My body was overflowing with a feeling of well-being as I counted my blessings for having been able to dine on a supersonic triple-decker Clotty Burger with a side order of French fries which had been tastefully cremated in 10W, 30W motor oil. The whole mess was washed down with weak coffee in which someone's rotten socks had apparently been washed. 
How unlucky were earlier generations who never had the chance to sample such typical 20th century gourmet fare. Well, I glanced up and down the main street looking for action. You've felt this in your <laughs> many times yourself. A yellowish glow and flapping pennants caught my eye as they created a bit of fairyland several blocks away. Suddenly, an unseen hand seemed to grip me as I felt myself forced down the street. My feet barely touched the ground as the banners beckoned me on, inevitably. I woke from my hypnotic trance to find myself gazing at a sign which read, Smiling Sam's Used Cars. Damn it. I thought my days as a used car nut were over. But like a reformed alcoholic, I find the old weakness still there. Behavioral scientists know that two ideas used for eliminating other creatures are employed to lure the used car cuckoo to his doom. Plains Indians have known for centuries that a flag waved seductively from the end of a stick will pique a pronghorn antelope's curiosity, fatally, in fact. As the flag waves, the antelope, antelope comes closer and closer, till suddenly, whap! Mr. Antelope becomes the star of the tribal stew pot. The multicolored lights of a used car lot are similar to those which every summer lure millions of idiotic moths and sundry other animals to their death. Combine these two ideas, the waving flag and the bright lights, and the fate of the average weak-willed used car fan is preordained. Have you ever thought why you're attracted to flags waving outside of a hamburger joint or flashing lights? It's the same thing that draws other animals to their doom. Ever think about that? <laughs> I mean, there's always, you know, always somebody ready to pull a flim-flam on you, and you which reminds me, this is WR New York. And uh, do you have the uh, button there? Hit the button there, please, everybody. Yes. You mean there's no no music with the general tire? Oh, I have copy with it first. That's new copy, then. It usually opens up with the, with the horns blowing. What happened here? No, it comes out with the music. Let's hear it. Right now. Yes, sir, friend. No need. General winter tires. You go in snow or general pays the tow. Yes, sir. General Tire is now offering a pair of famous winter cleat black wall snow tires for only $38. Size 650 by 13. Federal excise tax is $176 per tire. Larger sizes are also available at comparable prices. The great General Tire has four full plies of Nijon nylon cord and a deep cleat four-rib tread that digs and digs. Bring it up big. Yes, take advantage of General's low price on snow tires for all winter driving. Drive in where you see the big red General Tire G. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. In Jamaica, see Steve Posner or Mel Miller, Queens County Tire Corp, 105-109 Medic Boulevard. That was pretty good. That, you know, it wasn't the way it should have been, but it was okay. I mean, what the hell? After all, it's middle of the week. Hey, uh, listen, we got kosher with us here tonight. And if you haven't uh, tried this kosher, come on, get on the stick, will you? Crying out loud, you're all hung up on health food. You should be trying kosher. Wolf's kosher. K-A-S-H-A. Kosher. It's centuries old. If it's lasted that long, it must be good. It's a popular food staple of successful Eastern Europe. And kosher is getting popular here, too. It's Wolf's kosher. And they'll send you a uh, recipe book with unique hints on how to prepare filet mignon en brochette on kasha bonats. Huh. 
That'd be exciting. Roast chicken on kasha almondine. And baked mountain trout with kasha herb stuffing. Just to name a few of the leading characters that can be found in this tasteful book. Which, by the way, has been bought by MGM for a major musical starring Vera Ellen. It's going to be next fall. Salute to Kasha. Choreography by Busby Berkeley. It's going to be an exciting, wonderful thing. Yeah, Gene Kelly plays a matzo ball. But nevertheless, we would like to suggest that you try Wolf's Kasha. W-O-L-F-F-F-S. Wolf's Kasha. <laughs> yeah. Humbug. Brack. Let's see. Kasha. Great. Oh, we one more. We got Great Shanghai. Yeah, what can I say about Great Shanghai except that uh, you should know about this great restaurant. Boy, am I loaded with commercials tonight. This is great. You always tell Christmas is coming, you know. The commercials come drifting down like Christmas goodies come drifting in. And uh, one of our favorites, of course, is uh, Great Shanghai. It's a tremendous Chinese restaurant. And, and as a matter of fact, it really is. It's been a traditional place for a long time. And generations of uh, Colombian type students have, uh, you know, guys that go to Columbia. I guess you'd call them Colombian students, right? Yeah, you can tell. Uh, that old famous art form, Colombian art, is famous. However, uh, nevertheless, if you drop by at Great Shanghai at 103rd and Broadway, ask for, you want, tell them you want Setsuan food, and tell them you want it all the way. Just holler, all, all the way, Setsuan! And you better get got your tin hat on and be able to be wearing your asbestos suit. This stuff is hotter than Billy Be Damned. Blow your glasses right off. So uh, I would suggest you try that new Sichuan fabulous, fantastic cuisine there. Of course, they also have Mandarin Cantonese food. Every Sunday from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m., the Great Shanghai serves a fabulous brunch. It's a super buffet. All you can eat for only $2 and a half. Children under four feet tall, laugh twice. Great Shanghai, 103rd and Broadway. IRT comes right up next to the chopstick cleaner in the kitchen. That's the Great Shanghai, Broadway at 103rd Streets. We got all the commercials done. <laughs> Hi, George. Anyway, I, I want to finish reading this, because uh, this guy gets warmed up. He, he goes on, he gets a little off. I say, I'm going to tell him how to tell a story here later on, in a later, uh, later, uh, later edition of our class. But he gets pretty good here. Because <laughs> he, he really does describe the, the, the used car mystique. And this is not a show we're doing tonight for women types. Because I don't think they've got the used car hang-up. But practically every male I know, his blood quickens. Unless he's a true urban type, you know. This is, his blood quickens when he passes a used car lot. Now, why? He says, well, it's tough. He says, once you're hung on that thing, you can't escape it. And that's the way I am, even this day, you know. I keep, I keep looking at used car lots. He says, he says, I found myself standing there just looking. He says, in the front of this lot... On a throne of its own, gleaming like a ruby, was a three-year-old Ford. Spotlights glistened on its flawless finish, and garish signs attested to the Ford's superb qualities. Cream puff, one owner, low mileage, like new, TV special, easy terms. A series of two-word phrases that proved beyond the shadow of a doubt that this was a new car which had somehow strayed onto the used car lot. I looked furtively around and breathed a sigh of relief. At least the salesman was nowhere in sight. Now I'd have a chance to browse peacefully among the shining used beauties. Over the white clappered, red-trimmed tiny office was a piece of doggerel, which read, and I quote, Need a car? Well, here you are. See Smiling Sam, for he's your man. 
I damn near threw up at this bit of slob poetry, but somehow it made my blood quicken. Oh, well, I mused, even if his poetry is terrible, a guy named Smiling Sam can't be all bad. One thing about used car dealers I have known, they are all named Happy Harry, Jolly Jerry, Honest Ed, Generous George, Good Men and True, with never a Rotten Roger or Lousy Louie among them. I sauntered between the cars, feeling fenders, kicking tires, slamming doors, and generally indulging in all the joys of the true used car klutz. It didn't take me long to work past the fairly new two- and three-year-old cars to the back of the lot. Now we're getting to it. The back of the lot. Which was where most of my past troubles had started. Here were the real cheapies. Two elderly Fords. One Plymouth with crudely patched fenders. Three worn-out Chevys. A 64 Studebaker with one of its four headlights missing. At one time or another, I had owned a Hudson, a Fraser, and a Willys. Yes, with this affinity for off-make cars, naturally, the three-eyed study intrigued me. <laughs> Some guys do have this. They're hung on off-make cars. Can I uh, help you, bud? The unexpected voice at my shoulder almost made me jump out of my BVDs. There was smiling Sam, his teeth gleaming at the yellow glow of the incandescent lights. He was indeed smiling, a tremendous ear-to-ear smile. No, I said. I'm just looking. Where the hell had smiling Sam come from so rapidly and so silently? I have a theory that the used car nut gives off some kind of a supersonic bleat like a wounded rabbit, and this attracts the predators. It attracts the predators, or perhaps used car salesmen, like all true predators, can smell blood from a great distance. I started to edge out of the lot as remembrances of past smiling Sam's made me move faster and faster in order to escape my fate. I can't help myself when I'm around a used car lot. Sam walked along, chewing my ear off in his unctuous fashion. It seemed to me that his buck teeth kept changing momentarily into fangs, but I guess the twilight caused that illusion. His parting shot as I was about a block away was, I could hear, filtering down through the clouds of, of smog on the street. Give you a goodbye and a studie. She's got a lot of good miles on her yet, bud. Don't pass this one up. Yeah, I said, as I broke into a trot. When I was several blocks away from Sam, I stopped to catch my breath. My knees were shaking, and a cold sweat was on my forehead. Now I knew how a field house, field mouse felt when it dodged away from a hawk. Wounds, physical, emotional, and financial, started to ache all over me like the scars of an old defeated warrior. Many times before I had been lulled by that siren song, she's got a lot of good miles left in her. And it always brought trouble always brought trouble by the bushel. My mind leaped back to the first time I'd heard it, many years before, when I was an undernourished, pimply-faced, callow youth, as innocent as a lamb before the slaughter. My buddy, Beanie, and I had toured the used car lots, when suddenly we arrived at the emporium which I felt in my bones was the place. I looked over a two-year-old Pontiac which squatted on the front row. My entire life savings, which made an Unusual, by, but minute bulge in my normally flat hip pocket. Wouldn't have been enough to buy one wheel off the Pontiac. But this is part of the puberty right, known as buying the first car. 
Would you give me a little echo chamber there as soon as you're ready, Herb? Just a little echo chamber. Buying the first car. Buying the first car. That's an important moment. It is part of the puberty rites. The salesman, a kindly old white-haired gent who was a dead ringer for Lewis Stone, the guy that played Andy Hardy's father, came over to take me under his wing. It's a nice car. I stammered as I leaned against the Pontiac and tried to sound worldly and sophisticated. Yeah, it's not bad. Yes, said the elderly, distinguished salesman. But it really isn't what you want. I have a, I have a real beauty here for you. He took me back to the nether regions of the lot and showed my first true car love. Oh, showed her to me my first true used car love. There she stood, gleaming in her hand-rubbed paint, her hand-rubbed coat of black house paint, pristine and beautiful. A virginal 11-year-old cream puff. Yes, gleaming in its house paint. My heart beat faster as I rubbed her lumpy paint job. My blood pressure rose. There was a throbbing in my ears. I felt a tightness in my throat. Pimples started to pop out all over my face. This was it. True love. I remembered my puberty vows and became formal. Eh, she's nice, I said, trying to sound calm on top of it. But uh, I kind of like the Pontiac. Okay, let's uh, take another look at the Pontiac said Lewis Stone, or Father Hardy. As we moved back to the front row, I looked over my shoulder. The Chevy winked her headlight at me. My heart jumped. Well, Lewis Stone and I had our formal little pas de dieu around the Pontiac, like an angler with a hooked three-inch bluegill. He knew it wouldn't take much effort to land me. The car salesman had participated in this puberty right many, many times. He knew his part well. Ten minutes later... I had been shorn of my every last buck and was driving the Chevy home. A little echo chamber, Herb. The Chevy. <laughs> That's a word in itself. The Chevy. Caps. Her motor sounded like a sewing machine and she rode like a Rolls as Beanie and I cackled over the way we had swindled that stupid old car salesman. I could see old women stare in amazement as they said to each other, Never thought that kid would amount to anything, but just look at that beautiful car he's got. Girls who had never noticed me before looked away from their boyfriends and glanced at me with hopeful looks in their eyes. I drove my Chevy proudly home, five whole miles without a bit of trouble. After that, just let me say that buying a used car is a little like marrying Miss America and waking up the next morning to find yourself beside somebody's great-great-grandmother. I won't go into the gory details, but this was the first summer ever in my life that I didn't get a tan. I was either hanging by my toenails from a fender trying to fix the engine, or underneath that clunker, looking up at her rusted guts. It took all summer to get her running, and the end result was that I was so pale, people kept asking me if I had been sick. Some critics thought that I should have junked the bomb, but a true used car kook never admits he has been taken. That is absolutely true. As Shakespeare may have said, 
Greater love hath no man than that which he, well, with this slobus americus vulgaris hath for his clunker. This is true love. I have scores today of physical ailments accumulated from years of owning ancient and decrepit clunkers. Knuckles have been smashed beyond repair by having an F.W. Woolworth end wrench slip off a petrified stud and hurl my hand against an unyielding engine block. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? <laughs> if you've ever worked on cars, man, you just take a look at a guy's hands and you can tell whether he's worked on cars. Those big knuckles come from just exactly what he's talking about. You're trying to get this thing off and bam! <laughs> my right arm is twice the size of my left due to the exercise I received from jacking up scores of cars to change one threadbare tire for another. There is a crease across my back from the bite of a hungry and malevolent Ford hood as it slammed down while I was adjusting the timing. <laughs> Listen, that reminds me of one time. I mean, you guys that don't mess with cars don't realize how true that is. I, I, I never forget one of the worst unbelievable traumas I ever had as a kid was one day my, my old man loved to work on his car all the time. See, he, he always had used cars, but he always kept them in absolute top condition. He was always working on them. He was, he was a real car cuckoo. And, and if he knew, I'll tell you, if he had lived to see me writing for Car and Driver, that, that, would, have been, that, that would have been made it all the way for him. <laughs> you could win a Pulitzer Prize, so what? <laughs> if you wrote for Car and Driver, now that's writing. So <laughs> the, old man, the old man one day, see, he's, he's, he's inside the car in the hood. And, and, and we've got this Pontiac. The hood is up, you know, big hood, see. And, and he's, he's, he's down in there, and he's tuning the, the carburetor. Well, now, I'm supposed to be helping him. So he says, all right. He says, now, now idle it. And I'm sitting in the car. Idle it. And uh, so I take my foot off the, off the gas, and it's going... And he's working away down there trying to adjust the, the fine jets or something. All right, step on it now, will you? Boom, brum, brum, brum. Smoke going out the back. All right, idle it now. Take it easy. And then I hear a little muffled, oh, damn it. He's, hey, will you give me this wrench here? It's down here. I, I, I don't have any hands free. Give me the wrench. So I, I jump out of the car and I run around the other side, see. And here's the old man. He's got both of his hands in there. And he's got a hold of his carburetor somehow. And he says, all right, give me the wrench. Come on, it's over there on the fender for crying out loud. I can't hold this thing forever. And the car's going. <laughs> well, I reach for the wrench. And as I reach for the wrench, I hit this prop. You know, there's this metal thing that holds the hood up, and it's got a spring in it. I hit it, and it goes, whoop! Bow! It hit the old man right on top of the head. Oh! What a shot! <laughs> it just hit him right on the back of the head. See? Ooh! And he's bent over. <laughs> and for one brief instant, we just stood there, see? And... And I, and I, I, I'm due to the fact that we're on the radio, of course, so there's no way for me to tell you the, 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 what he said. I'm telling you, it was a fantastic. He just, he just let out one gigantic word. It really hit him, say. I mean, it was, he was letting it all hang out at this point. And it just, wham, it hit him on the head. And he let this word go. My mother's up on the back porch and she hears him, say. And she says, now stop it. The boys are listening. 
So I don't give a damn who's listening. And he gets, he pulls his head out from under the hood, and the car is still going. <laughs> He's got a knot on the back of his head. I want to tell you, it looked like he was, you know, it looked like he was boiling eggs between his ears. He's got a giant knot. And for about three days, every time I see him, he's rubbing his head. And he said, oh, God, what a headache. I've got a splitting headache. Oh, you stupid. You can't do anything right. You can't do anything right. <laughs> well, you know, this is the, this is the curse of the, of the used car. You, you cannot help it. But at one time, no matter how hard you work on it, you're going to get hit by the hood. If you don't get hit by the hood, you're going to get hit by the trunk. The trunk come down and give you a shot. So this is part of it. He says, <laughs> he says, three fingers are permanently frostbitten because I work on icy cold kingpins in an unheated garage one arctic January day. Oh, that's true. Listen, I, I, uh, I remember one time when I was trying to change a tire. I had this car that had these tire irons. You know the tire irons? And and I'm I'm standing on the tires and I got these three tire irons. I'm trying to prod this thing open and, and working around, working with the iron. I'll never forget the, uh, excruciating but you talk about excruciating pain. Well I'm 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 working low on this tire iron. Well, somehow I don't know how the how the devil it happened, but I got my thumb, the ball of my thumb caught between the rim of the of the of the wheel and the tire. And I want to tell you, that pinched me. It was unbelievable. I mean, I, I, I was just like one gigantic ball of, of, of totally realized pain. What a fantastic shot. Well, I, I got my, my thumb out of it. There was a ball of this thumb. And instantly, I got a blood blister. It, you know what it looked like? It looked like I had hanging on the... It looked like I had a tiny bowling ball hanging on the end of my hand. That was my thumb. It was red, and it was a blood blister. Uh, oh, and and to me, every every time I think of working on cars, I think of these pains. He says, if I had saved my money instead of subsidizing used car dealers and the unsavory, unsmiling characters who operate auto junkyards, I might even have now owned a combination cigar store and bookie joint instead of scratching for a living. Ah, the emotional traumas as my shiny my shiny junk box fell apart on a main drag, or expired silently in the country. The broken dates and missed appointments, all the tragedies of a seamy life caused by my weakness for used cars. I love used cars. Aches, pains, mental scars, and poverty are the legacy of the used car nut. He says, why? An observer may ask all this work for a car. Everyone has different ideas. That's true. There's, no, there's a lot of theories on this. There's a small group means he was one of these who dream of carburetors instead of girls. These individuals hang out on street corners and in bars talking of shaved heads, four-barrel cars, blowers, and various other means of honing a car to top performance. The car is an end in itself and not the means to an end for the greasy fingernail fraternity. To me, it was different. <laughs> Ever since I could crawl, my basic urge has been to see what's down the next block or around the corner. It's my problem. When I get old enough to have, have a bike, my range of exploration extended to the point where other kids thought I was nuts. Then came hitchhiking, hopping freights, until finally the ultimate freedom, my own car. All my efforts were toward a major goal, to get out on the road and go. Once a week, 
On educational TV, a panel will convene to discuss, quote, the car and its influence and total domination of America. In the seedy group of panelists is a guy dressed in a double-breasted baggy tweed suit with vest. He has a cigar in his mouth and sports a beard. His contribution to the brilliant discussion, given in a middle European accent, is, Well, the car is the average American sexual substitute. Everyone applauds. But I turn the TV off because I suspect this guy doesn't know a damn thing about cars or America. <laughs> That's true. So many, so many intellectuals have that idea. Uh, my theory, he says, I can have one, can't I, is that the American is infected but by what might be called the boomer syndrome. Let's take literature for a starter. European novels are built about a hero whose main claim to fame is that his family has lived in the same house for 14 generations. The classic American novel is probably the Western. Its hero invariably is a drifter, always on the move, until the fatal day he cleans out the Snidely gang single-handedly and rides off into the sunset, usually with just his horse. There are things endemic to American life. The family car, which is basically a living room on wheels, is unknown outside of North America. A trailer in America is a common and accepted travel item. In Europe... The word used to describe a trailer is caravan, which gives a connotation bringing to mind unwashed vagabonds dancing around a campfire. On the other hand, everything in America is slanted towards travel and movement. I agree with them. Uh, absolutely. Uh, this brings me to the boomer urge, a uniquely American element. The type of boomer I first learned of was the railroader, since several of my relatives had chosen this way of life. Boomer railroaders move from job to job by choice, and not because of economic necessity. They covered the length and breadth of the Western Hemisphere, sampling life in various climes and latitudes, and changing to a new location when the spirit moved them, or the brass hats became too obvious. My relatives, the boomers, when I knew them, were gnarled, weather-beaten old men who had no more tangible possessions than a worn blue serge Sunday suit and a battered valise. Old and worn, they owned nothing but memories. Memories of warm tropic nights, the pine smell of the north woods, Pacific salt air, icy winds blowing off the lakes, springtime Appalachian snowstorms, desert heat, nothing but memories, which ain't too bad a bankroll in my estimation for a life. This tradition has passed down to all of us. There have been oil boomers, boomer truckers, boomer machinists, Boomer aerospace workers and thousands of other guys who go from job to job, not by necessity, but because over the next hill or around the next curve is paradise. We are all ebbing back and forth across the USA like a human tide. The American heritage. Move on. Eden is just ahead. Isn't that interesting? Keep up the good work, he says, and go on. He says, Wanda Hickey is a classic. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, for those of you who wonder what the book he's talking about, it's it's a book I just had published called Wanda Hickey's Night of Golden Memories and Other Disasters. Now, I agree with him on that. And before we... Uh, do we have a Wolf's Cash or a General Tire? Nothing. We're all through with spots. Well, I must add one more thing to this, and it's this, that uh, I think that the people who came to America in the beginning were trying to escape the confinement of 
European life, which was con you were confined by your nationality, even to this day, every time you cross a border, five guys ask you, where are your papers? And you better have them. Uh, moving about Europe is not easy. Uh, there are papers, there are visas, there are all kinds of things, and, and also uh, just physically it isn't. But I think that's one of the reasons people came here. And I think it's so much in, in our blood that, uh, that to think that the car is a sexual substitute is to not know anything about cars or sex, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> I have to add that myself. And I've seen so many of these silly panels where there is the guy usually sitting there with the little beard. Well, we all know that the car is a status symbol and a sexual substitute. He goes on like this, you know, and the poor guy, you know, you know that he, his whole world is based on what he's learned in books. He doesn't walk down the street and he hasn't uh, listened to anybody talk about a car in Cheyenne. He doesn't know what it's about. And this is the way so much of our, our academic world is. It's, it's based on, on old European concepts of what is and what isn't. I think Freud, of course, was the ultimate European. Very much so. And uh, Freud didn't know much, really, about how it feels to get out on Route 66, just outside of Albuquerque, and head for the next Howard Johnson. So, uh, in, in, uh, and I'm not, I'm not uh, <laughs> again, you know, we're, we're, we're so curious these days that any time you, you, you say something that sounds like it could be pro uh, our life, uh, people tend to think, well, what is this? Is this a right-wing not chauvinist or something? <laughs> no, I'm simply saying that, that the urge to move, uh, you see it in kids, too, especially today. Of course, you always did. Uh, you, any any uh, road you travel on now, there's 5,000 kids hitchhiking uh, and or buying an old car and taking off and or an old motorcycle and taking off. This is much part, and is this a sexual substitute? No, of course not. It's the urge to go, man. And uh, that's part of, of uh, the whole used car syndrome, uh, walking around. I don't think many people today in, in, the, in our time look upon the car as a status symbol. Almost anybody can own a car. What status is this? It's, uh, it's what the car is. It's, it's, it's the same thing that a horse meant to a guy on the frontier. Personal transportation, the ability to go anytime. You just... Dead of night, you go out and you get on and you go. <laughs> but, uh, you know, speaking of, of used cars, practically any guy who's ever bought a large number of used cars, you know, throughout, if you're a real used car cuckoo, you bought more than several. And I have. Uh, he, you, can, you can start any one of those guys on for four hours straight telling you about unbelievable used cars he's owned. Uh, I, I, uh, Oliver, <laughs> I one time. Uh, back in the early 50s, I got a hold of a, of a used Hudson Hornet, which I will never forget. That Hudson Hornet, I want to tell you, caused me more grief. And it, it also was the fastest, most ferocious, angry car that I've ever owned. And I can remember driving long, dark nights on US-41, driving south out of Chicago, heading down towards Cincinnati and going on through that, that you know, 41 goes straight on down. Man, it just goes on and on. And I'm out there in those dark prairies at night, driving in that, that, that Hudson, which kept pulling to the left. It had a, had a curious problem, would always pull to the left. And, and I could hear the transmission. The transmission was beginning to go bad on it. And, and at, at 1 and 2 o'clock in the morning, after driving for hours, the thing sounded like it was saying, damn it, damn it, damn it, damn it. It was swearing. 
I could hear it. I, I really could hear it. You know, like you hear the sound of a railroad train going. You hear words. Well, this this Hudson just kept saying, "Damn it, damn it, damn it, damn it, damn it, damn it." And I just kept saying, "Well, damn you, damn you." You know, we fought ourselves all the way up and down 41. I put a hundred thousand miles on that thing on top of the 300,000 it had already. Man, it's the world. This is WOR New York. Stay tuned for Big John Scott and the News.